Thank you for playing, Margie. As, uh, as we get started this morning, I want to actually take a moment and I want to thank someone who is not here, not thanking them for not being here. Uh, but I want to take a moment and just say thanks, and I want to encourage you as well uh, to be able to say thanks as well. Um, this week, we finally got the approval from the city of Clemson on the completion of the Family Life Center renovations. Uh, actually, I saw a couple people just kind of doing the quiet golf clap, and that's, that's okay. I will tell you that I did more than a quiet golf clap when they gave us that final approval. Um, that being said, there are a lot of individuals who worked incredibly hard to help get that done. Uh, and the individual that is not here today, his daughter has a swim meet that he needed to be at. But Russell Perkins has put countless hours into the work that has taken place. And I want to encourage you, if you get the opportunity this week to send him a message, to call him, to text him, simply to let him know how much we appreciate his generosity of time. The amount of effort that went through, he, he went far beyond what was expected of him. And we are very, very grateful of that. And because of that, today we get to have a new service over in our Family Life Center. So it really does make a difference. And we celebrate that. I hope that uh, each of you will at least get the opportunity this week to express your appreciation to him. All right, that doesn't have anything to do with my message today, though. Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about winning. I don't know if you guys noticed, but I'm wearing a football tie. It's got the Carolina Panthers on it, and I did that not only because it's football season, but uh, I'm going to start a new series today that's entitled The Game of Life. And I will tell you that as a part of this series, uh, I, my goal is to tie in some of the biblical principles that we find in Scripture to things that maybe uh, you will see during this football season. Uh, often what happens is we are a visual people. And what happens is when we see something, it reminds us back to other things that were talked about. For example, today, um, when you watch football this afternoon, assuming that you do, um, there'll be things that you'll hear the announcer say. And hopefully those things will actually bring your mind back to what you heard this morning uh, during the church service. At times I've done series where I'll use like street signs, uh, where each one of those street signs points us to a biblical principle. For example, a yield sign might point us to the fact that we need to be yielded to the Lord. A one-way sign might point us back to the fact that there is only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Uh, when we see those signs, it ought to remind us of those principles. Uh, well, that's kind of the hope here with this series as we work through the game of life. I don't know if you guys noticed, but my son was actually wearing a football jersey. Um, and then actually I noticed that Greg and Kay are wearing referee jerseys. Greg walked in this morning. The first thing I said was, what are you blind? How can you make that call? You haven't just because he's wearing a referee jersey. That's it's just a natural thing. It just came out of me there. So all right, now to get into the message. According to Forrest Gump's mama, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I would say that instead, life is like football. And I'm not the first to say that, by the way. Life is like football. Southern humor, humorist Lewis Gizzard put it this way. The game of life is a lot like football. You have to tackle your problems block your fears, and score your points when you get the opportunity. Legendary coach Vince Lombardi said, 
uh, basically the same thing. He said, football is like life. It requires perseverance, self-denial, hard work, sacrifice, dedication, and respect for authority. Of course, he also went on to say that football is not a contact sport. It is a collision sport. Dancing, he said, is a contact sport. I played football in high school. I know that some of you guys are probably thinking, yeah, right. No, I really did play high, uh, football in high school. Uh, it was a long time ago. It was way back in the Middle Ages. And I was a defensive back. Um, I was one of those guys who never really wanted to play offense. I didn't want to be the quarterback or the receiver or running back. And there's a good reason for it. Uh, in football, if you are a defensive player, your job is to hit the offensive player. If you're an offensive player, your job is to get hit by the defensive player. Well, I didn't want to play offense. I didn't want to get hit. I much, would much rather be the one who got to hit other people. So I enjoyed playing football. Um, of course, I will tell you that part of what I just said was not true. Football didn't exist back in the Middle Ages. Um, American-style football didn't even start until around the time of the Civil War, and it was an alternative to soccer and rugby, which were two of the common sports at that time. If football had existed during biblical times, what I would suggest is probably the Apostle Paul would have been a huge fan. I say that because his New Testament books contain many sports analogies. The primary sport of his day were running and boxing and wrestling. Listen to some of these illustrations from Paul's writings. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. In this case, the Apostle Paul uses running and boxing as his model, as he wrote to the city which actually hosted the Isthmian Games, which was uh, sort of like the Olympics. Or in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul declares that I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And in Galatians 5, 7, he says, as he is challenging the church that has stopped doing the things that they knew that they should have done, he says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Finally, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, as Paul is nearing the end of his life, he declares that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He has run the race and now there is a prize that awaits him. You know, it's this idea of winning a crown that transcends every sport. Maybe you don't really get a crown but there's a prize. It's why you compete. It was Herm Edwards, the former coach of the New York Jets, who said, you play to win the game. Every time you turn on ESPN, there's a quote specifically from him. You play to win the game. It's why you play. An author, Stephen Covey, was one 
the one who said that the second habit of highly effective people is that they begin with the end in mind. Well, as I begin this series today, my goal is to equip you to win the game. We'll talk about the rules. We'll talk about some of the potential obstacles as you play. But today, we'll specifically talk about what the crown looks like for us who are in Christ. What does it mean to win? Let's start by looking today at Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16, which is our primary text. And it says this, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. I love what he says right there in the middle of that passage. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what is the prize? What is our goal? Well, the easiest answer is heaven. He was called heavenward. And there is some truth to this answer, but I will tell you it is an incomplete truth. But the first place we look is heaven. God's word describes heaven as a beautiful place. The imagery within Revelation and other New Testament books is amazing. It talks about pearly gates. It talks about streets of gold, a huge banquet table, and of course the throne of God where God himself will be seated. It also talks about angels and some very unique creatures. And it talks about the saints of old, those who have gone before us. I will tell you that all of those things are attractive to me. The beauty of the things makes my imagination run wild. The idea of seeing gates that are made completely of pearl. What an incredible image that is. We fight for gold today, yet the streets are going to be paved with gold when we get to heaven. The throne of God is an incredible idea. The fact that we get to, and you guys have heard me share it before, in Revelation 3.21, my favorite verse of scripture, where it says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. To look at the throne of God and to see God sitting there, saying, come on and sit up here on my lap. What an incredible privilege. Of course, the banquet table. Anytime there's food, it's a great thing. Can you imagine being able to sit and carry on a conversation, perhaps with the angels or with the saints of old? A conversation maybe with the Apostle Paul or with Peter or Stephen or Martin Luther or even John Wesley, for which this denomination is named. Or maybe a more modern example, Billy Graham. I know he's still here, but... Uh, I don't know that he'll be, be here much longer. I have a pastoral friend who married into the Graham family. 
He is the great uncle to my friend's wife. They went for a visit at Billy Graham's family home in North Carolina, and he got to spend a couple of hours just listening to Billy Graham share his heart for ministry. They enjoyed a meal there, and he said he was already in incredible awe over the privilege of being there with Billy Graham and listening to him share. As they were eating, he accidentally spilled his drink on his shirt, and Mrs. Graham immediately jumped up and said, get that shirt off, I'll get you something to wear, and she began to clean his shirt. She gave him a jacket to put on, and he put it on, and as he was kind of pulling up over him, he looked at the inside pocket, and he saw embroidered inside property of Johnny Cash. My first thought when he told me this was, Billy Graham stole Johnny Cash's jacket. I imagine it was given to him. But imagine the opportunity for us to sit in the presence, not just of Billy Graham, but all those people we've read about since we were little kids, and to be able to talk to them about what they experienced and how God moved in their life. Wouldn't it be just amazing to be able to sit and listen to the Apostle Paul talk about getting knocked off of his horse on his way to Damascus? To be able to hear how God truly fed 5,000 people. To talk to the other disciples and say, now you're not going to believe this. We really did only have five loaves of bread and two fish. What an incredible privilege it'll be to be with those individuals. But the greatest highlight will not be the things. And it will not be those other people. The greatest highlight of heaven is in being with Christ. The goal of the Christian life is to know Christ. Philippians 3, 10 and 11 says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That was his goal. And it should be ours as well. The goal of the Christian life is to know Christ and to be like him. Listen to Jesus' words as he prays in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Christianity is more than a religion. It is a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. As with all relationships, it begins with an initial meeting or an introduction. In Paul's case, as I just referenced, it was a complete surprise. It wasn't what he planned when he woke up that morning. He wasn't pursuing Christ, longing to become a Christian. Instead, Acts chapter 9 tells us that he was actually going out to arrest Christians. His goal was to stop the spread of this faith when suddenly a light blinded him, knocking him to the ground. And he hears a voice which cries out to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he answers, well, who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are now persecuting. Paul, on that day, met the risen Christ. 
What's interesting in Paul's case was this was merely the first step. He had to be introduced to Jesus, and when he was introduced, it was the beginning of something fantastic. If I were to ask couples who are here today how they met their spouse, we would hear all kinds of stories. Some met as teenagers. Others met much later in life. Some were looking for a spouse, and others were simply surprised when God introduced them to a spouse. Some met, but it took years for them to become a thing. Others met and things took off immediately. For some, it was love at first sight. For others, it was a long friendship that led to romance and marriage. And some of you, you just stalked her long enough until she was willing to say yes. But for everyone, you began a personal relationship with your spouse And because of it, your life took on a new direction that it never would have taken if you had not entered into that relationship initially. It's much like a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your introduction to Christ likely was very different than Paul's. Most of us have never been blinded by a light and therefore come to Christ. You may have met Christ as a child. Maybe you were raised in a godly home. Or maybe you met him much later in life. Perhaps it was in a crisis moment where you called out to the Lord for help and he delivered you. And from that moment forward, you chose to follow him. Maybe it was just a simple moment of contemplation where you began to think about the things that were going on in your life and how much God loves you. And you thought, you know what? I need Christ in my life. But one thing is constant. If you are a Christian, you must know Christ personally. It doesn't even matter how it happened. What matters is the fact that it did happen. You don't know just about him. You know him. You can say with Paul that he is truly Christ, my Lord. You can know a lot about someone without knowing that person intimately. We'll have a guest speaker that will be with us next week. And I can't tell you his name right now. I told you last week, I've never had a speaker where they were coming and I'm not allowed to tell people who they are. Uh, But I will tell you that when he walks in the door, every person in this room will recognize his face immediately. Why? Because you've seen him before. And for many of us, what we have done is we have almost looked at God in the same way. We've seen him maybe at a distance We've heard other people talk about him. Maybe we've even heard his voice at times. But we do not truly know him personally. There is a big difference between the two. Well, God doesn't want to be your acquaintance. He doesn't want you to know just about him. Surely there will be things that you know about him. Things that we need to know about Jesus. You need to know who he claimed to be. He is God in the flesh. You need to know some of the things that he did and the things that he taught. You should understand that he died on a cross for your sins and that he was raised from the dead. But beyond these facts, you need to know him personally. That relationship begins the moment that you recognize that your sins have separated you from God and that you need a savior. 
You also need to realize that you can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. There's nothing you can do that somehow makes things right between you and him. It's in that moment that you ask him to show his mercy. And you accept his son as a payment for your sins. In that moment, you are saved and understand this. From that moment forward, you must know him personally. It's not something you did 10 years ago at the altar. It's not something that you can check off your list or your bucket list that one day you're going to look back and you want to know that you've done this, 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 and this. Rather, this is the beginning of something fantastic. It is the beginning of a real relationship. Like any relationship, once you've met, you need to cultivate that relationship. If you meet the girl of your dreams, but then you never see her again, you won't really have a relationship with her. You must spend time together getting to know one another through conversation and shared experiences. You learn about her history, her family, her likes, her dislikes, her hopes for the future, and all the other things that you might include in that. If you do something to offend her, you ask her forgiveness, and you learn to work through the difficulties in a healthy way. A relationship with Christ is no different. It requires cultivation and it requires time. It never ceases to amaze me how young men and young women can be so busy. They have so many things on their plate. Seems like they never have time for anything. But then they meet that special someone and out of nowhere, they've got all the time in the world. Because they can make time. Why? Because it's important to them. The same should be true with Christ. The next goal that ought to be a part of every one of us, the part of the prize, is for us not just to know Christ, but to be like him. When you met your future spouse and you got married, your life was changed. You would never be the same moving forward. The same is true with Christ. He marks you for life. And what I mean by that, I understand we still have a responsibility to walk in Christ But I'm going to tell you something. You were marked long before you were ever born. God desired a relationship with you. Every one of us, every person in this community, God desires a relationship with every one of us. The scriptures teach us that it's not God's will that any should perish, but rather that all should come to repentance. God has planned all along for you to be in a right relationship with him. Doesn't mean that everyone will choose to respond to that. But I will tell you that God desires for you to be in a right relationship with him. And that desire will never, ever change. The rest of verses 10 and 11, which I read earlier, shows the components and direction of the change that goes along with knowing Christ. The first thing that we see is to be like Christ requires knowing the power of his resurrection. Paul came to know the power of the resurrected Lord when he was struck down on the Damascus road. And even though not all conversions are as dramatic as Paul's was, all conversions do require the same mighty power of the risen Christ. Because they all require God to raise the sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life. I was talking with a group of students this week. And we were talking specifically about miracles that we see happen today. 
And very clearly, in both of the classes that I was teaching, they came up with the same answer first. God still saves people today. That was included as a miracle. Do you recognize that that is a miracle? There are other miracles God chooses to do. He can still heal people. He can still even raise the dead. He can still multiply need uh, financial resources to meet needs. God can still do all of those miraculous things. But know that the greatest miracle he has ever done was reached into the life of a sinner and given them the opportunity to walk in his grace. To give someone who is enslaved by whatever their addiction, whatever their problem is, to give them the freedom to walk without having to be enslaved by that anymore. That is the miracle of Jesus Christ. And maybe you didn't get blinded and get knocked to the ground by the Lord. But it doesn't diminish the miraculous power which God displayed by reaching into your life and giving you hope and victory. Recognize that the resurrected Lord is the one who resurrects you as well. He is the one who gives us the victory. Beyond knowing the power of his resurrection, to be like Christ requires knowing the fellowship of his suffering. Have you ever seen the Passion of the Christ movie? It is a brutal depiction of what Christ's sacrifice was probably like. This is more than a nice children's bedtime story. This is the act of sacrifice that made salvation possible for you and for me. A verse I used last week comes to mind in Hebrews 12 verse 3. And it says that we should consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. When was the last time you considered him? And the opposition from sinful men which he experienced. It wasn't even just the, the Roman soldiers. We're talking about even the people who should have loved him and should have been faithful to him. They turned their back on him. Sometimes we feel so alone in this world. We almost wonder, is there any hope for me to do anything? We feel stuck, like this is all there is. And God says, you don't know the half of it. I've already suffered much more than you could ever suffer in this life. Do you know the sufferings of Jesus Christ? To know what he has done for you? The third part of this is not only to know the power of his resurrection, not only to know the fellowship of his suffering, but to be like Christ requires being conformed to his death. I told you a moment ago that the old self needs to die. And that's a part of the resurrection, knowing the resurrection. The old self needs to die. And we, when we enter into this relationship, I feel like it needs to be explained a little bit to us. The old self dying is not something that just happens randomly. It's something that happens by choice. Colossians 3 talks about putting off the old self and now living the resurrected life. In verse 5, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then it goes on to list some of the things that you shouldn't do. But the point is that we must make the choice to be changed. I recognize that it is only by the grace of Jesus Christ that our sins can be forgiven. 
And it is only through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us that we can be empowered to walk in victory and freedom. But there is still the requirement on us. We must make a choice to allow the old self to die, to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, this is what Jesus meant when he said that whoever follows him must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Living for Christ is a daily choice, and when we choose Christ, he will empower us to walk in victory. The last thing that we see here as a model of what it means to truly win the prize, to be like Christ, it will be realized in the resurrection from the dead. What I mean by that is simply that it's not just about what happens in this life. To truly be like Christ, we will never experience all of it until we reach that point that we are in his presence for all eternity. Now you see dimly. Now you see but a glimpse of what it's really going to be like. Then we will see clearly when we see Jesus face to face. I could use some big spiritual terms to describe this, but what it comes down to is that there is coming a day that our becoming like Christ will be made complete. And in that moment, we will be like him, totally apart from any type of sin or even temptation, sharing in his glory throughout all eternity. Today, my encouragement to you is simply this. Recognize what you're playing for. There is a prize that awaits us. And it's not just this place called heaven, but it is the person of Jesus Christ. What we are playing for is the privilege of being in a right relationship with him. That's the prize. I look forward to being in heaven. It's going to be an awesome place. But it's just a place without Jesus Christ. Do you know him already? In this morning service, today I will share a very similar message with the folks next door. My goal over there is truly to lead people to Christ. My assumption over here is that most of you are already in a right relationship with him. What I would ask you is, are you still playing for the same things you played for when you started? Let me share what I mean by that. I look at college football and I look at pro football. I look at college basketball, I look at pro basketball. They're very different from each other. College athletes are playing because they love to play. It's just the enjoyment. They like being out there with their teammates. It's almost like a family to them. They love being in the game, and it's that joy that brings them out there constantly. In the pros, it's a little bit different because now they're playing for a paycheck. And they play almost out of obligation at times, or they maybe don't even feel like going into work today, but you know what? I get paid well, so I'm going to be at work today. I wonder if those who are in the body of Christ, if perhaps some of us have begun to play for different reasons. 
There was a time in our walk with Christ that when we woke up in the morning, our only thought was that intimacy with Christ. We wanted so much to know him more. We wanted to honor him in the way we lived our lives. We knew that there was this huge weight that had been removed from us. And we were so excited that we had been redeemed by him, that he set us free and gave us the victory. But I wonder if at times we in the body of Christ lose sight of that joy and that fulfillment and we begin to simply do the things we're supposed to do because that's what we are required to do. I don't know if you're a college football player or if you're a pro football player, but I will tell you what I long for is that joy of simply being in the game. From a spiritual standpoint, you guys know the difference. Sometimes we do things just because we're supposed to. We give our tithes because that's what God expects of us. No. We give our tithes because it is a privilege for us to invest in the kingdom. It is a joy to be a part of his work. We come to church on Sunday, not because we have to, not because it's a routine for us. We come to church because we get to worship the risen Savior, with others who will join with us. We get to tell other people about Christ, not because the pastor told us to, but because I have the privilege of introducing other people to Jesus Christ. Yesterday, I had the opportunity. I was out uh, visiting with different people and promoting the new service. And I got to talk to so many people. And I went home. Physically, I was tired. But I went home and I was on top of the world. Because I knew that I had had the privilege of telling other people about Jesus Christ. Do we do it only because we have to or do we do it because, wow, it's what God gave us the privilege of doing. So I want to challenge you today to examine why you're in the game in the first place. I'm assuming you're already in it. Why are you in it? If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today. We thank you for the invitation that you have extended to us to be in the game. Lord, you have offered every one of us the privilege of knowing you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to know that you loved us so much that you would send your son to die for us. But we cannot say thanks enough for the love that you have offered to us. Lord, I pray today that you would remind us of that joy that we once experienced in our walk with you. Some of us have been in the body of Christ for so long that maybe we've even forgotten what that was like. Perhaps we do the things we're supposed to do only because we have to do it. We are fulfilling our responsibility. There is a responsibility in nature to this. But Lord, we don't want to lose out on the joy of serving you. But I pray that you would work in us the way you did in David. As he prayed, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And renew a steadfast spirit in us. Lord, I pray that today we would truly be in the game for the right reasons. And I pray that you would help us to look forward to the day that all of these things will be fulfilled.
With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, I just want to ask real quick, I want to pray specifically for you. I will not call you by name, but perhaps today you would say, Pastor, I've been in this game for a long time. But somewhere along the way, I've started to act like this was nothing more than a responsibility or requirement. But I want to play because of the fact that this is a privilege. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Father, right now, for the three hands that I just saw raised, Lord, I pray that you would once again fill us with incredible joy. Allow us to be your instruments. Use us. Change us so that truly we might be able to experience incredible joy in serving you. I know there's going to be other things that come along. They're going to try to distract us. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. And as we do so, may you be pleased with what you see in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.